Hey, Jay. You know, I still think vampires would be super into marrow. Marrow like the stuff inside bones. Marrow like so-called genetic marrow or marrow that angry lady named Sarah. The last one. Because, I mean, given all the marrow in her bones, do you think she has extra blood? I, I think bone marrow would generate extra plasma. So if her extra bones have red marrow, I guess she might have extra thick blood? Which would put her at elevated risk for clots, but that doesn't necessarily seem like a plus for vampires. So maybe not traditional blood vampires, but this is the Marvel Universe. We've got vampires who feed off mutant genetic marrow, mutant life force. Oh, that might be a problem as well, actually. Because it'd kill her? Because she's not a mutant. What?! Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 410 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. I mean, Marrow's might be a mutant, she kind of is, she wasn't, it's a whole thing. Look it up and then lose your mind. Well, she used to be a mutant, she's no longer a mutant. I mean, I guess if she died and came back in Krakoa, maybe she, that would remutant her? It would, yeah, in theory. Huh, I'm not sure if that's been clarified. Anyway, all of that immediately aside, we're not here to talk about marrow. We're here to talk a little bit about M-plate and thus genetic marrow. We are here to continue from last episode to talk about Generation X. Well, among other things. And I, I know we should recap the stuff that was previously covered. And I'm sort of dreading it, like... Because, it, okay, do you do you ever start a comic and get the distinct feeling that you're not actually high enough to read it successfully? I mean, we are recording this literally on April 20th. Well, and I am actually, not because of 420, but because of the material we're covering, waiting for an edible to kick in. Because I was I was going through my notes and I was, I, I was like, sh I should be on, it, on drugs for this. And I, I happened to have some drugs-infused gummy bears, and I ate one, and then it occurred to me that it wouldn't actually kick in until we were almost done recording. So that's what it is. But I've gotten into the spirit of the thing, at least. And I think that's important. Yeah, the spirit of the thing. So we're doing something we haven't done in a while, which is we're doing a two-part story, two episodes in a row. Part of that is we just, you know, experiment with pacing as the podcast continues, and part of that is that this story is bonkers enough that we kind of figured that was the only way we could make any sense of it. Yeah, I am already a little bit baffled doing this a week apart, and I feel like it's going to be kind of baffling for listeners to have a week gap between these episodes. I, I can't imagine actually successfully recording the second part a month after the first. <laughs> right. But yeah, Generation X has been interesting lately. So Larry Hama just took over. He had one issue, and then he started this arc. The M-plate and pukas and tokens and different dimensions arc, I guess. Uh, I thought we'd agreed it was going to be M-plate. M-plate, yes. But that's the thing with Gen X. This book's tone is so inconsistent from writer to writer, even from arc to arc within the same writer. It goes like from slapstick goofy to dark and serious to melancholy— I was trying to think of what it reminded me of, and I keep coming back to the old Mirage Studios Ninja Turtles comic, which was just all over the place in terms of tone. It's kind of like that. In all honesty, I'm really struggling 
to stick to our mission on this arc, because for the most part, it is absolutely inexplicable. Like, it reminds me a little bit of Claremont's Excalibur at its weirdest, but with less context and internal cohesion. I think that's a good parallel, yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's it just it's just, you know, the tone and the the style of this arc. Um, but it makes the idea of explaining it pretty daunting because I mean, the ways in which we could explain it, which are things like technicalities of visual storytelling and panel to panel pacing and I guess, you know, vagaries of dialogue aren't really that podcast friendly. And that's also not what we primarily do here. Like we cover that stuff, but it's it's not the central focus of this podcast. The central focus of this podcast is is explaining and discussing plot and continuity, which um is is not a thing that we can really pull into clear lines here. I, I feel like this this episode is just gonna have to be Jay and Miles recap Generation X and then talk about it a bit. That seems entirely reasonable, although it does make for a longer podcast title. But I know us. We have been doing this for years. We got through the Leprechaun arc of Generation X. We can get through anything. We can, although I, I gotta say, you know, again, writing up writing up the notes for this, having even having read the couple the comics a couple times, it this whole episode just it's gonna feel like one long cold open. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. But right now we're not at the cold open. We're at the previously on. So listen, it's really best if you just listen to the episode covering the first half of the story. It was last episode. It was number 410. It's right above or below this one in your podcasting app. Honestly, though, even if you listen to that episode, even if you listen to this recap, you're not going to be that far ahead because you're not going to be able to necessarily make sense of forthcoming events based on previous ones here. Well, let's give it that old, not quite in college school for mutants in Massachusetts try. Okay, so, turned out that M, arrogant and perfect 16-year-old member of Generation X, was actually her two twin sisters, each of whom is half of M's age, merged into one teenager. And their brother, OG Gen X villain M-Plate, tried to capture them. But being experts in merging, the twins merged with their brother, thus turning M and M-Plate into M-Plate. So M-Plate immediately captured Generation X member Sync and promptly teleported away to another dimension, along with M-Plate's previous allies who are now working for M-Plate. The rest of the team split up to find their partially villain-merged collection of friends. Jubilee and Chamber met up with a puka, a large anthropomorphic ferret in a blazer drinking a martini, named Elwood, who promised to take them across dimensions to where Sync is headed. Banshee, Husk, and Penance were taken by a former ally of M-Plate, a rat with a smiley face on his butt named Dirtnap, also across dimensions to go find Sync. That, I believe, by way of a little bit of nonsense technology called a lepton imploder. For all of your lepton imploding needs. Emma Frost and Skin were stuck at home, trying to distract the police chief who showed up looking for his missing daughter, Tracy. As for Tracy herself, she was being held captive in Generation X's Danger Room equivalent, the Biosphere, by a mythological creature called a token. Important aside, we don't really know what a token is, and its name makes it functionally ungoogleable. Yeah, yeah, I tried that too. So, got all that? No, you, you actually don't. It, it doesn't make sense fully, but it is pretty fun. And that brings us to Generation X number 37, In Dark Woods, The Right Road Lost.
This issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Andy Smith, inked by Sean Parsons, colored by Mike Rockwitz, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft and Liz Agraciatas. We open, uh, in Medias Res, with Jubilee Chamber and their Puka pal Elwood being chased through a jungle by something that looks like a malformed allosaurus with eyes on stalks and extra rows of teeth. And this, Elwood informs us, is a boojum. Specifically, Elwood tells Chamber... It's a snark, Jonathan. Actually a boojum, to be more exact. So this is from Lewis Carroll's poem, The Hunting of the Snark, another Lewis Carroll reference after the Wonderland stuff in the last collection of issues that we covered. Apparently, Lewis Carroll came up with this poem, which he refers to as an agony in eight parts, uh, with the last line first. For the snark was a boojum, you see. I haven't read it, but Wikipedia tells us that the bellman in the poem describes five unmistakable marks that can identify a snark. First, the snark's flavor, meager and hollow but crisp, apparently like a coat too tight in the waist. Second, it sleeps late into the day, waking your five in the afternoon. Three, it dislikes jokes, especially puns. Four, it likes bathing machines and carries them with it wherever it goes. Fifth and last, it is ambitious. And I think that's a good thing to reference in this arc, because this arc feels like that level of what? Yeah, yeah, no, there, there's, there's definitely a, a general nonsense quality to it. Which is fine. That That is what it is. This is the nonsense poetry of Generation X. So after some missteps involving extra eyes, Chamber eventually manages to blow up the Boojum's entire head, after which the three heroes ride its decapitated body toward the Amalgamator. Oh, we should have mentioned what the Amalgamator is. Um, so M-Plate is, is on a mission um, to something called the Universal Amal- Amalgamator, is it? And the Universal Amalgamator will merge all consciousnesses in the universe, or in the universes, presumably, since this is in a different one than 616, into one. It's sort of in the same way that M-Plate is merged, but, you know, universally. As much as we talk about how weird this arc is, it does have that thematic through line. Everything is about merging things into things. In this case, four separate storylines into one merged one. But they're still separate here, so... Jubilee is impressed by Chamber blowing the boojum in half and says that she wishes she could... Crank up the gain on my paths the way you can with your bioblasts. Actually, Jubes, you can. I mean, remember, whenever you fully let go or are emotionally overwhelmed, your powers are incredibly destructive. I mean, Jubilee blew up the Mandarin's base one time when she was pissed off. What she's saying could just as feasibly be that she wishes she could, you know, let go in the ways that would enable her to do that. That may be true. Chamber mentions that, you know, it's not a great deal. I mean, I mean he's missing a lot of his face. Eh, faces are overrated. So the trio races through a red-skied alien landscape on Boojumback as Elwood's pocket watch ticks towards zero until the Boojum runs lack of head first into a big stone door marked Moria. Yeah, that one. You know, from Lord of the Rings. Like, where the Balrog is. Sure, why not? I'm pretty sure that wasn't in the public domain yet here. Uh, I'm not really sure. It definitely wasn't as in the public consciousness as it would have been a few years later when the Peter Jackson movies came out. I mean, Lord of the Rings was a big deal, but it wasn't as big of a deal. Well, it was a generational big deal. I feel like there are more people in our parents' generation who would have been just fluently conversant in it um, than, than than in ours at this point. Probably so. So anyway, as it turns out, only Jubilee can open this door... Not because she knows the elvish word for friend. No, because she has the lowest center of gravity and no... Because it was built by dwarves. I love it. That's sort of the closest you get to logic in this arc. 
And it's pretty awesome in there. There are these carved stone arms and hands holding torches out of the cave walls above these many sharpened stakes and spikes over a big pile of skulls. I mean, the Brothers Hildebrand it is not, but it's pretty cool. Meanwhile, behind the New Xavier Institute, Banshee, Husk, and Penance, accompanied by Dirtnap in rat form, head through the reality hole ripped by the Lepton Imploder and into an Arctic snowdrift. At which point, the dimensional gateway behind them blinks out of existence, leaving all of them very underdressed. Well, fuck. Luckily, there's smoke from behind some trees, uh, where they discover a train just kinda hanging out. Um, and also there are a bunch of topiary animals, which Sean says give him a bad feeling, like, that is the aspect of this whole scenario that sets off your weirdness radar? I mean, to Sean's point, the topiary animals are all staring at the train, which is the only source of shelter, which is creepy. But I love this. I love that the story does not offer any explanation for literally any of this. It's like, okay, there's a train. Guess you gotta go on. There are topiary animals. Why? What do you mean, why? There are topiary animals. They're right there. Look at them. Now get on the train. That's kind of how I feel about topiary animals in real life. I suppose that's true, but it's really just that sort of dream logic. Like, stuff just happens, and everything that happens get the, gets the characters closer to the end of the story, but not necessarily for any coherent reason. And for me, and I may be giving Larry Hama more credit than is due, but that fits that theme of merging, of converging. Like, everything that happens, no matter how disparate, no matter how random, just kind of turns into one big blob of a plot. Yeah, it's not necessarily coherent, but it is coordinated. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. In a way, I'm reminded, I mentioned dream logic, but I'm reminded specifically of the dream episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the end of season four. It's got that kind of a vibe. So, once on the train, our our heroes stoke the boiler, and Dirtnap tries to convince them to give up on, on Everett and, and head home to safety, but they will not. Now, Penance, meanwhile, discovers a timetable— which routes the train through the following stops. Elsewhen, Nunsuch, Laputa, Neverhow, Avalon, Moria, and C-O-T-U-A, which Dirtnap clarifies is the citadel of the Universal Amalgamator. A note, like M-Plate's sort of home pocket dimension, C-O-T-U-A, the citadel of the Universal Amalgamator, doesn't actually have a name or numerical reality designation. Yeah, none of this stuff does. It's just, like, a weird dimension. And I like that. It really adds to the confusing, dreamlike quality of everything. So Banshee has decided that because the Citadel of the Universal Amalgamator has the word amalgamator in the name, and M-plate is an amalgamation, that must be where they're headed. Which is the weirdest way to come to the right answer by absolutely the wrong logic that I have ever encountered. As I said, it fits the theme. So off they head to Dirtnap's general confusion. He is, is just not grasping, again, why people would risk their lives to help someone else. Um, and what's, he wants to know if they would do the same for him. This is weird. Uh, Husk is positive that Dirtnap has only ever known the worst people. And he's just so baffled at the idea of even the slightest bit of compassion. Like, Penance offers him a bit of cheese, which, don't eat floor cheese, Dirtnap, it's, it's a bad plan. She might have brought it with her from the Institute, you don't know. Where would she keep it? She's just wearing, like, leather strappy stuff. You know, between straps, I don't, I don't know, maybe she's got a cheese pocket, it's the 90s. Cheese pockets were a big deal in the 90s, it's true. Well, it's the 90s, there's a pouch for everything. Now I'm just imagining Penance wearing Jenkos. She'd just, she'd tear right out of them, like, you know, wipe her hands on them and they would just be gone. Oh, yeah, Jenkos did have some flaws, that was definitely one of the big ones. No, no, that's, that's a Penance, that's because she's sharp. 
anyway, back in Moria. Right, right. Back in Moria, um, Jubilee, Chamber, and Elwood bounce off a series of giant mushrooms and land on railroad tracks in the path of an oncoming train. And guess who's on that train? Yup. But let's jump from there to the Universal Amalgamator, specifically its Citadel. Right, M-Plate may be all about breaking new ground, but they are also a considerate villain in that they take a minute to recap their plan. All consciousnesses in the universe will be melded together, and all thought will conjoin in a joyous babble forever. That is babble, B-A-B-E-L, not babble, B-A-B-B-L-E. There are some etymological links. Also, there's a nice lady named Gaia chained to an altar. Yeah, yeah, there's just this teenage girl with blonde hair, and her outfit is like a cross between archangels and, I don't know, Wonder Woman's? It's got lots of purple designs and a blue background, but it's also got this golden girdle and boot accents. It reminds me a very little bit of uh, Tara's first outfit in Teen Titans, albeit with a different color scheme. It's got a similar vibe. So Gaia is a mutant, and she is the guardian of the Amalgamator, and her power, we don't, we don't know the specific nature of her power, but we do know that her power is the key to unlocking it. And we never really find out most of that. We never find out how this place got here, how she got here. We learned that her civilization was destroyed at one point because she refused to activate the Amalgamator and, you know, fuck up the multiverse. But there are so many questions, and we don't get those answers. My first question is, why would someone build this? Yeah, why would you build this? I mean, M-Plate clearly wants it. M-Plate clearly wants to amalgamate. But it's also just been sitting around, you know, free to the... Well, not exactly highest bidder, but you get the idea. Yeah, but like so many things, including topiary animals, we just sort of have to shrug and move on. Again, it's got it's got some cross-time caper sensibility to it. Just just the sense of of madcap dream logic, but yeah, with less logic. So Gaia let her entire civilization be destroyed rather than activate this thing, so she's definitely not going to activate it for M-Plate, and that is why Sync is there. Sync is M-Plate's backup plan, because he can sync with Gaia, and M-Plate is banking on him being a little easier to coerce. Well, we can't spend too much time here. Let's go back to Earth-616 to the biosphere, to the danger grotto at the school. Right, this is where the local police chief's daughter has climbed up into a treehouse and then disappeared at the hands of something called a token. And uh, Chief Atier is here investigating, and he does not find Tracy in the treehouse, but he does climb down and inform Skin and Emma that they have a token. He does this in a very chill and matter-of-fact manner. Um, he also informs them that they can make a deal with a token by offering it a bowl of porridge and a pile of silver, because he's, he's, this is a weird cop. He is. I mean, he does mention he has a very multicultural background, and some of those cultures know what tokens are and what to, to do about them. Spoiler, a few issues hence, he will turn out to be a mutant telepath, which explains a thing or two. So Emma and Skin head off to do just that. They, they leave out a bowl of... a bowl of something. So I think the can is supposed to look like it's got a Quaker logo on it. But it's... so so I, I assume it's maybe supposed to be like like dried oats to make oatmeal... Except it's it's the size of, like, a soup can, and what comes out of it appears to be baked beans. I'm reminded of an X-Men issue where Nate and Franklin Richards are drinking milk, but it's called orange in every panel, and it just grossed me out because then I was just thinking about what orange milk would taste like, and it was not good. Didn't it occur to you that they might be drinking orange juice? They call it milk! Oh, never mind. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's inexcusable. 
I know there's a big controversy over whether, like, oat milk can be called milk, but with orange? No, you can't have orange milk. I'm against it. I forbid it. No, I mean, if you milk an orange, you get orange juice. I mean, if you squeeze the nipples just right, then, I don't know, maybe it's something else. And the silver they use is actually the contents of a piggy bank. Um, so so they're they're really committed to not doing this very well. This is like quarter-assing it. I love it. Like, Emma and Skin just have no time for this fairy mythology stuff. So they, after after leaving this stuff out, they head immediately to the treehouse, where they find Artie, Leech, and Tracy Autier uh, having a tea party with their new pal, The Token. Hey, that's nice. So speaking of the Autiers, um, Chief Autier had a couple of teenage or young adult miscreants in his car named Dorian and Weasel, um, whom he had caught trying to break into a culinary establishment called Eat, not to be confused with the culinary establishment called Eat from the Girl with the Gold Boots. And uh, he he collars them. They've snuck back out of the car while they're at the school. Again, um, has them clean out the local drunk tank and then turns them over to Mr. Timmons, who is, is the proprietor of Eat. And he sets them about cleaning out the storeroom and warns them away from the door marked WC. We should probably explain that one again, too. WC stands for William Claude. Or Water Closet, if you're nasty. Yeah, well, uh, and yes, all of the water closet doors we've seen in this arc have been interdimensional doors. So that's a thing, and let's go through one of those interdimensional doors to Generation X number 38, Mystery Train. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Liz Agraviatis. Terry and Rachel Dodson's art is really a breath of fresh air after all these villains. It's it's more consistent. It's got that soft but sharply edged look that the Dodson's work generally does. Like, they work really well together as penciler and inker. Um, I especially like the way they draw Banshee. He's got all these excellent grimaces. Just one of those, like, I wasn't even supposed to be here today kind of things. So, yes and yes, but I have to check for bangs to distinguish between Paige and Emma. And that is a significant problem. That is a frequent problem. I mean, yes, they're both relatively fit, slim, blonde women, but one is like 10 years older than the other, and all classy and stuff, and this shouldn't be as much of an issue. Oh well. Anyway, you remember that thing we mentioned about the A-plot literally crashing a train into the B-plot? Um, yeah, yeah, that train that Banshee and co. were on crashes into the Boojum that the other group is riding, and... Uh, the Headless Boojum. The Headless Boojum. And then the Squished Boojum. It's, it's pretty dead. The story is just full of all these impossible coincidences, but again, everything merges. And everybody boards the train, and they quickly pick up speed when they see that there's a giant spider chasing them for some reason. Because they're in Moria. I guess, but Shelob was, like, elsewhere in Sirith Ungol. But regardless... I, I love that you think that the fact that they're in a setting with a, a predetermined name means that that setting would function logically in the way that its, its you know, illusion implies. I'm just saying, I, I like the Lord of the Rings a lot, and Spiders are, you know, mostly elsewhere. I don't know. Maybe Moria has spiders. I never read the Silmarillion. It was too boring. Maybe after all the begats, it got to spiders in caves. Okay, you know what? I am going to call precedent here, and I am going to say that you are not allowed to continuity shame about Tolkien. Oh, okay. Because, see, I remember rereading the whole series before the first movie came out. And we went to the first movie... And you mentioned that they decided not to kill Bill the Pony. 
And I said, no, Miles, Build the Pony doesn't die in the books either. And you were so convinced that Bill the Pony died in the book that you, that, that, that like you actually shook, you, you actually convinced me that, that my memory of the book I had just fucking read was completely wrong. So, so, um, that is, that is, that, so you don't get, the point here is you don't get to continuity shame about Tolkien. Oh, fine. You, you have spent that privilege. Maybe they should rename the Mandela effect the Bill the Pony effect. Anyway, the chase flings Dirtnap the rat off the train, and it takes most of the heroes working together to save Dirtnap from the spider, which blows Dirtnap's mind. Like, a person doing a nice thing for another person? This has literally never happened within eye, eye shot of Dirtnap. They lay it on a little bit strong. I, it really makes me sad that he's not usually a rat. Uh, no, he was a very large man busting rhymes on the street when he first showed up. He just, he works so well as, as, as like a cute little rat. Well, for what it's worth, when he comes back years later, he's a rat again, so uh, they agree. Good for him. You know what? what is also wonderful? The dimensional vortex that they are headed straight into. Oh, it is awesome. Like, the train tracks are just continuing through this purple void. And it's all giant pastel orbs and streaky pink clouds and blue lightning ahead coming out of this big glowing star. Uh, Jubilee sums it up in her Jubilee fashion. Looks more like a psychedelic music video from the ancient 80s, Sean. But it feels more like that time I ate that old slice of iridescent ham in the fridge. Ancient 80s? Jubilation Lee, you first appeared in 1989, damn it. Well, I'm so mad at her that I'm gonna go to the Citadel of the Universal Amalgamator, where M-Plate, uh, villain explains to Gaia that, yeah, like you were saying, Jay, it doesn't matter if Gaia refuses to help, they can make Sync copy Gaia's powers and accomplish the same goal of merging all life into a godhead. Which does sound very impressive. And I love the way the Dodsons draw Gaia. She's bound to a slab, and we find that she's been bound to this slab uninterrupted for literal thousands of years. Huh. Yeah, she still looks so determined and badass. She really does look visually, facially even, like somebody who could have resisted for literal millennia and through the retaliatory destruction of her own universe. Maybe she didn't like them much. Uh, maybe. The narration later states that the sole purpose for her existence is to trigger this thing, but... Wait, what? How? Why? We'll never find out. Yeah, Gaia is is going to pop back up in Generation X after disappearing partway through this story arc. And, and and she'll actually be around for a while. Yeah, but we don't really learn very much about this. Like, for instance, how she could stay sane if she was here for thousands of years. I mean, Rachel Summers was thrown into the time stream after Excalibur 75, and she barely kept her mind intact, and she was only there for a mere 2,000 years. And she actually had stuff to look at in there. Oh my god, maybe that's the secret to her resistance. It's not that she's, you know, that, that she just doesn't care about her home planet. It's just that she's amazingly, unsurpassably chill. Oh yeah, she's just like, eh, whatever. Chained to a slab for thousands of years. Can't move even in the slightest. Nobody to talk to. Eh, could be worse. School. Maybe to, to bring this full circle, she's on the drugs. Maybe she's on the drugs. Maybe she took an edible at, like, the beginning of those thousands of years, and it was a really potent edible. And a very slow-acting one. Mm, you know, hey, in her universe, who even knows what it was like before it was destroyed? Maybe this whole thing is just Gaia's extended hallucination. That could be. That could be. 
Chimera, remember Chimera, the dominatrix-looking lady that helped Emplate teleport out of his d- dimension at the beginning of all this? Well, she's there. She's not so sure that she wants everybody to merge into one consciousness. That that doesn't sound very good, so M-Plate just disintegrates Chimera with an eye blast, and Chimera is dead. Yeah, it's okay. She'll come back alive with absolutely no explanation a few years from now. Yeah. And M-Plate declares... This defeatist negativism is just the sort of thing we will do away with by establishing a new universal order. Huh. I mean, weird motivation twist, but again, I guess thematically appropriate, if out of nowhere plot-wise. Yeah, I I definitely didn't see, like, mandatory sunshine as an M-plate thing. M-plate decides to to see if Sync is in fact a little bit more malleable and less uh, chill than Gaia, and threatens that if he doesn't help, she will incinerate... Your family, all your friends, everybody you have ever loved, and even those you merely liked and said hello to. If you didn't say hello, you're good. Sync is really polite, though, is the problem. Well, maybe he, you know, waves sometimes. Maybe he just says, hey, or, or here's to you, chum. Ahoy hoy! No one says that. Alexander Graham Bell said that. Yeah, but he was an ableist fuck, so... Yeah, he can just stay dead. And so he shall. Anyway, suddenly a big train comes out of a vortex above the Citadel, because plots keep merging, and it is fight time. And M. Ivan Plate has even more powers than their component people, which is kind of cool, like they're literally greater than the sum of their parts, they just get all these new combat powers out of nowhere. M. Ivan Plate has, has several of, of Sync's colleagues in, in a force bubble, and is threatening to, to crush and kill them, unless Sync goes ahead, syncs with Gaia, and activates the Citadel. And Sync does it. Sync starts the process of, of syncing with Gaia, the universe and all sentient beings is too abstract a notion compared to the immediate suffering of my friends. Isn't there actually a name for that psychological phenomenon? There probably is, but college was a long time ago. I'm, I'm talking about the, the tendency to, to be more empathetic and more capable of processing minor than major tragedies, basically. Yeah, totally. Like the, the, the sense of scale that goes with it. My textbooks are in another room. Sounds too hard. Fair enough. This will remain unexplained. Like so many things in this episode. Dirtnap will not allow his newfound friends to be killed, though. These kids are literally the only people he's ever seen in his entire life with any positive qualities demonstrated whatsoever, even in the slightest a little bit. So he uses a power that we've seen before if we've been reading Wolverine, which we haven't. And he opens up his belly to reveal a giant toothy mouth about 50 feet tall and just fucking eats M-Plate. It's awesome. It's really good. And the thing is, based on how this arc has gone so far, I would really not think anything of him doing that, even if I was totally unfamiliar with him from Wolverine. It would be like, oh yes, that's what happens. Well, of course it does, yeah. And that leaves him a very round boy indeed. He is this enormous sphere with a smiley face on it and a tiny rat head and limbs sticking out. It's ridiculous. Back in Massachusetts, uh, in the biosphere, the, so the Porridge and Silver have done the trick, and uh, Emma and Skin have, have seen the prisoners of the token, who are in fact 
just sitting sitting with the token, having having a pleasant tea party. Apparently, the token is quite nice, if a bit touchy, and um, the biosphere belongs to token kind and, and not to the school. And this gets dropped like it's a plot thread that's going to matter later, and it absolutely does not. Nope. What does matter is that the token can help these heroes jump into the A-plot. Or at least he instructs them to wait at the subway station for the A-plot to show up, which they do. They have to get to the subway station, which they do through a door in the the floor of the treehouse, which inexplicably leads to a staircase down to a subway station rather than the empty air behind it, because tokens can bend space like that. Also because it's this arc. And that brings us to Dorian and Weasel. Yeah, they, of course, sneak in through the door they're not supposed to go into, having never read Bluebeard, and they find the same place everybody else is. They find a big dimensional void. Everything is converging. Specifically, into Generation X number 39, Return from Forever. This is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Terry Dodson and Dan Lawless, inked by Rachel Dodson and John Holdridge, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I love the opening. Right, we open with an angry DOA, this is M-Plate's weird little chauffeur, um, jumping on the now enormous and spherical dirt nap, trying to get him to regurgitate M-Plate. And there's this great image of the two little girls, Claudette and Nicole, of M also, of M-Plate, and then M-Plate, all sort of emerging from dirt nap in this big cascade of humans transforming into one another. And they all have that smiley face on their chests that all of dirt nap's forms always have. It is so surreal and rad. But dirt nap is not able to digest and possess them. Um, dirt nap actually explodes, uh, leaving a very gooey... M-Plate, Claudette, and Nicole. And Jubilee, she licks the ectoplasmic jelly off her chin that Dirtnap exploded into and says, Mmm, tapioca. Jubilee, come on! Dirtnap just saved you all and then died! I think Jubilee is leaning into the spirit of the Ark. That may be true. Because the fact that she's snarky about it is not the thing that shocks me most about her actions in that sequence. If, if a rat explodes, and its viscera land on your face, is your first impulse going to be to lick them off? No, 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 I would not do that. I would probably spit and sputter and make horrible noises. Like, and you would go to what lengths you could to keep them out of your mouth. Even if it turned out that those viscera tasted like tapioca. Or have the texture of tapioca. Oh, well, that's way worse. I mean, I love tapioca pudding, but the texture, um, I don't know, it always struck me as being fish eyes and jelly. How do you feel about rice pudding? I feel good about rice pudding. Anyway, you would think that this would leave M-Plate with the advantage, since he is enormous and super-powered, and um, his sisters are small and, I guess, also super-powered, but, like, in weirder ways. But he is caught off guard, because Nicole mentions that having merged with him, she and Claudette now know all of, of Marius of M-Plate's secrets, including what happened to the real Monet. Which is kind of weird at this point in the story, because as far as everybody knew, there was no real Monet. Monet was just the fake teenager that Claudette and Nicole would merge into to become. Which, in fact, was Scott Lobdell's original concept. Yeah, um, it's gonna turn out to be a lot more complicated than that. I like Jubilee's take on this whole concept. Time out? This is getting too confusing for me. Legit. So they all fight M-Plate, and one of Chambers' blasts hits some load-bearing scenery, and everything starts to collapse. M-Plate grabs the Lepton imploder and fucks off to another dimension with DOA, and that's the last we'll see of them in this story. Everybody else tries to head for the train, which is still floating above the Citadel. 
But Sink will not leave Gaia, and Gaia is still chained to an altar with unbreakable chains. And there's a new complication in the mix, because the timetable on the train has updated itself, and now the next stop is the biosphere, and they're scheduled to arrive in one minute. So we don't have a lot of time to break Gaia loose. Banshee makes the hard choice and knocks Sink unconscious to save him. He figures if Sink keeps trying to save Gaia, they'll all die. Fortunately for Sink's gray matter, he wakes up extremely quickly and he jumps out of the train before it can head into the dimensional vortex. And Gaia is freaking out. She mentions that she isn't meant to be free. She's been here for thousands of years, which, wait a minute, does she not have any bodily needs or functions? Does she not at least get, like, cramped or chafed or something? I mean, we talked about the mental health toll this would take, but I don't know. I go to give platelets, and after two and a half hours of not moving, I feel like my lower back is going to fall out of my whole body. She's just really chill, Miles. She's just so chill. She just relaxes every molecule of her body. But she does manage to get out, and she manages to get out because another student jumps off the train, and that is Penance, who, of course, is sharp enough to cut through anything. So, yeah, the train has already left, but Gaia fortunately knows there's a warp chamber right under the altar for some reason. And for some reason, it heads directly into that corner store that the two bullies are cleaning. Meanwhile, back at the biosphere where the train is headed, everyone heads down into the subway station just in time for the arrival of, of the train and its its... Writers, Elwood rides off with the train, and possibly also with the token, it is unclear. Yeah, well, we never really see either of them again, so I assume so. But but what about what about Everett and Penance, ask our concerned characters, having returned home, and, and as he speeds off on the train, Elwood tells them that they should check the warp chamber in the back room of the diner. Back at the diner... Penance, Gaia, and Sink pop through a portal into that WC room, just as Ne'er-Do-Well's Dorian and Weasel pry open what was blocking the portal in there. I assume the slab of stone that they pry away that's the ceiling of their space is the, the surface of the altar. Or the door under it? It's kind of unclear. But once again, once again, we have another example of everything just merging into one just because. So, Penance, Gaia, and Sink pop through, they knock over the ne'er-do-wells, they re-wreck the storeroom that they've just cleaned. And Gaia, realizing she's free for the first time in, again, thousands of years, sprints off at a breakneck pace, being followed by Penance. Right, because Sink um, is still tangled in a pile of, of ne'er-do-wells, but he's, he's able to, you know, yell for Penance to follow Gaia. God, Gaia doesn't even have to stretch after not moving for that long. As a as a mediocre but still regular runner in his 40s, I'm very jealous. She's just that chill. As Everett disentangles himself from the mess that they've all made, the bullies slash thieves um, decide to get a lot more hardcore and kind of racist and beat him almost to death and put what they think is his dead body into their trunk to dump him by the side of the road. Guys, I'd said you were less homicidal than the bully from X-Factor number minus one. Holy crap, this got dark. So that, yeah, they dump him and then the rest of the team driving home from the subway station. I'm not sure how they got a car there. But maybe Emma just just bought one in the parking lot. That seems I, right. I don't know. Um, I'll uh, or mind controlled it out of someone. Actually, that seems more likely. Yeah, you, you've got a telepath. You can get a car. Um, anyway, they they are headed home and they happen to stumble across Everett's again apparent remains, and that is the end of the M hyphen plate saga. 
So Miles, what you think? What? I have questions and so listeners do you. Julie asks via email for us to disambiguate Monet versus North Star as both seem arrogant, perfect, and similar power sets. There are definitely some similarities. Let's start with the part that's less similar, the powers. So North Star has speed, flight, and light generation and blasts. M can't do the light thing. M does have speed and flight. Also, enhanced strength, invulnerability, enhanced reflexes and intuition and senses, regeneration, telepathy, telekinesis, fusing into various different forms and being able later to turn into penance. They do both have weird twin stuff going on too, but in very different contextual forms. It's true. It's uh, it's all less creepy than the Strucker twins, Fenris, who can do stuff when they touch skin, and then when uh, the sister died one time, the brother put her skin on the hilt of a sword so he could use those powers, which is real gross. I thought he made a glove out of it. He made a sword at one point. Maybe this happened twice. Marvel's been going on for a long time. Anyway, don't be a Strucker. No, no. Don't be a Strucker. You could be a St. Croix, or you could be a Bobier. although I don't know that I necessarily recommend either of those either. So, uh, what, what do they have in common? You've, you've talked about differences. Well, like Julie mentioned, they are both very arrogant, but I think that arrogance comes from a different place in each of them. North Stars initially comes from a really intense nationalism, actually. That was a big early part of his personality. But later it came from resentment towards the folks who oppressed mutants and who oppressed gay people— fierce defense of his sister. The point is, all of his arrogance comes from anger. With M, it's not anger. Initially, it seems like she just sees herself as being superior to everybody, which, with all of those powers, I mean, I guess I get. But I think for her, it's largely a method of covering up her own vulnerability so that she isn't hurt. Uh, she once, in Peter David's second X-Factor run, collapsed in tears in Jamie Madrox's arms and then threatened to break him if he ever told anybody. I believe the arms in question may have belonged to a dupe, but yes. You know, as I've often said, I think Madrox works better when there's no Madrox Prime and they're all co-equal duplicates. But true. As for which I'd rather hang out with? I don't know. They both scare me. Trish asks on Tumblr, In the last few years, we've had several X-Men characters whose queerness has been historically relegated to subtext get explicit confirmation in the pages of the comics. Should this trend continue, are there any characters that jump to mind regarding ones you would most like to see become canonically queer? I just realized as you were reading it now that I initially completely misparsed this and thought that it was two questions, and one of them was should this trend continue, which is why my answer is just yes in all caps. <laughs> yes, it should continue. So, um, and this was, this was again, before the edible. This is, this is just, just my brain now. Um, no, but I, I think, for, I, first of all, I, I do want to say that I, I support the hell out of this trend. Um, I feel strongly that um, while you should not have to make this stuff explicit, like it should be able to be subtle in the ways that straight subtext can also be subtle, um, the the climate of the world and of publishing and all of that is such that making queerness explicit and textual in, in inarguable ways takes away exclusion by plausible deniability, and that's something that needs to be taken away because it's something that still gets used. Very much so. So with that that entirely unsolicited answer aside, um, I will say the real answer is is all of them. I mean, in, in terms of characters, Storm certainly jumps immediately to mind in, in terms of characters who have been subtextually queer for, for a long time. Um, for 
personal and and mostly spite-related reasons, I would like to see Lila Cheney confirmed as queer. But at the same time, I think I, I'd like to see more more male characters come out because I, I I think it's it's a lot more difficult culturally still to have queer male than female characters in a landscape like Marvel and the X Men, like in in that particular cultural milieu. There's there's an extent to which I, I feel like female queerness is seen as non-threatening in ways that male queerness is not, I guess, which boils down to it being for straight male gays, etc. Um, I'm, I have, I have gone down that rabbit hole so many times on this podcast that I, I feel like if you've made it to this episode, you've, you've heard, heard all of this anyway. So take it as read. I actually had some male characters that I was thinking of. Um, there's a lot of talk of Cypher's relationship with Warlock, but I actually really like that relationship being ambiguous and this sort of somewhat private thing that nobody else really understands. That's what makes it special. I'd like to see that specialness acknowledged more in a way that parallels acknowledging the the gravity of a serious romantic relationship. That would be cool, yeah. And I feel like we have this new opportunity to do so because Doug is married now. He's married to a woman— but clearly, Warlock is still a very important part of his life and of his identity, and I feel like you could do a lot more with that. So, let's see that. But we don't necessarily need to go into great detail. The other couple, I mean, dude, Black Tom and Juggernaut. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't even care if they have a sexual relationship or not, but we do need to, at the very least, make it explicitly clear that they capital L love each other because they so obviously do and it so obviously has romantic elements to it whether or not that's traditional romance I don't know and I don't care but that is right the fuck there for reasons of 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 text for reasons of inclusion and for reasons of sheer continuity I really feel like it's about time we saw the fact that Xavier and Magneto would definitely definitely be very public about having a relationship on Krakoa. Oh, God, yeah. If ever there was a time, like, and even even if they had not taken things fully in that direction in the past, which I think they probably have, but even if they hadn't, like, on Krakoa, they absolutely would have. Right, yeah. Oh, Krakoa, you're queer as hell and I love you for it. Textually, that's part of what makes Krakoa special. Text of X. See, now I'm thinking about the Doom Patrol TV show, which you have not seen, and Timothy Dalton's delivery of the line, trust them, they're sexperts. <laughs> well, that sells it more than anything else I can think of. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform or platforms. It really helps. In two weeks, we're back to X-Men Unlimited. With a body swap and the vengeful return of the angry Claremontian narrator.
I am really fighting my first slapstick in- instinct here, which is to just end the call. <laughs> <laughs> end of the episode. It'd be like Hawk Talk. Yeah.